0: Welcome to the TurfNet Renovation Report, brought to you by Golf Preservations and the Andersons. I'm Anthony Piaf, your host, and joining me today is golf course architect, shaper, and world traveler Tad King. Tad, nice to have you on.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, I don't want to undersell him as a shaper and a course architect. You may know his work as he is one of the co- Tad is one of the co-creators of Sweetens Cove Golf Course, which Tad, from what I understand, is a very good book on nine-hole golf courses. That rates you as the second best sweetens is the second best night hole golf course in north america is that true
1: that's correct yep
0: so let's t- tell me this story tell me how you got into shaping
1: well i had, uh was a project manager for a golf construction company out in colorado and moved to florida in 2003 and kind of hit the heyday down there of of golf and i was working for various contractors and I started to recognize that it doesn't matter how well you execute or how well you manage. If your shapers aren't performing, then you're uh, you're not going to get the job done efficiently and you're not going to get a good result. And so I've made a conscious decision to to learn how to shape. And when was it? I think it was April 8, 2005 was my first shaping job at Loxahatchee country club in Palm Beach Gardens, a full 18-hole remodel on a Nicholas course, and, um, and I almost got fired, but I, <laughs> I, man- <laughs> I I managed to figure out how to shape T's before they pulled the trigger, and so they kept me around long enough, and then uh, I just uh, picked it up. I gave myself two years to figure it all out, and I managed to do it. And who was, who was at Loxahatchee? Who was the architect? Doing the redo, it that, that was Greg Letchy at the time. Okay. He's with Ernie Elves now.
0: Great. And then, how did you get hooked up with Rob Collins to form King Collins and to and to build Sweetens?
1: We were. I was working for Ryan Golf, and um, we were doing with at the time it was called Twin Eagles in Naples, Florida, and um, it was a Gary Player signature. And Rob was um, the site guy for Gary Player. Okay, and. There was uh Benita Bay was a client, and you had your your typical relationship between the client, the designer, and the contractor where uh you know the designer wants to change something six inches, and the contractor wants to throw up the hand going change order, and the client is like confused and all of this and this was going on uh a lot of it, and Rob and i were She's like, man, there's got to be a better way. And, and his uh, his wife was down there. and My wife at the time was down there, and our daughters. And we we're all at Carabas on Tamiami Trail, okay. U.S. 41, yep. in Naples one night. And um, we decided, you know what? Let's let's do a design build. And that way, we what we design, we build. We eliminate the middleman. work right straight with the client. It's a win-win. Right. And we. Right. right then and there we came up with King Collins and that was uh early 2006
0: that's fantastic and then work on sweeten started what year
1: in 2010 we met right the uh the owners out there okay i was on a site visit i was on a actually i'm from georgia so i was visiting family in georgia and um we scheduled it to where we come up and meet the uh the the grandfather and two of his sons on site at what was called Sequatchie Valley. That was what it was prior to Sweetens, And that was in August of 2010. And I think we finally broke ground about it a year later. And so there was a lot of negotiating and a lot of haggling on a lot of stuff just before we, we even put a shovel in the ground.
0: And Ted, I think a couple of things people don't realize, people who are, you know, really into architecture but who've seen the, the golf course. It's fantastic. I've played it a bunch of times. It's It looks great. It plays great. But that was a dead flat piece of land. And how much sand was brought in so you were able to shape that site?
1: Well, what we did was we dug lakes. Okay. And we we only wanted – we didn't want water in play. So only number six, the Cape Hole, has water in play. But that there's a large lake uh, behind three green. There's there's big one uh, – to the right of two that kind of wanders out into no man's land but that was what generated all the fill to give us the features and uh and the landforms that we've got so that was about a uh about 350,000 cubic yards of material came out of those lakes um and we were married to a, a bottom elevation because of drainage purposes so we, we couldn't you couldn't cut to in, in the golf hole like cut in a basin
0: we should probably explain it's an extremely wet site because you have a river running right along the golf course that that does flood the course
1: it was extremely wet and we had to dig rim ditches around the lakes and pump the water out so the stuff that you dig dig out was dry enough to be able to shape with and number five the drivable par four is is the highest fill on the golf course it's about 25 feet above the original grade and for two years water seeped out of the front left of that, uh, that landform. And I mean, we couldn't sod that basin there at the, at the front left in front of that pine tree. Yeah. I'm
0: picturing it right now while you're talking about it. Okay. Yeah. I, forever,
1: yeah, I, forever and ever and ever. We couldn't sod it. It just was too wet. Just, so we finally it dried up enough to where we could get some herringbone in there, some French drainage. And, um, yep. and then, uh, you know, now that drainage isn't even necessary. It's uh all the water's finally leached out of that landform years later, and and um it's dry now. But boy, it was, it was a challenging build, that's for sure. Yeah,
0: and and it's an amazing sight to I me mean, when you see the before and after photos from what it looks like now and the and the topography that's there to to what to what was originally there was this dead flat. Um, an interesting golf course. I mean, there was there was was there any elevation change on that original site?
1: Yeah, there was an elevation change, and it was um a seventy-seven acre square parcel of land <laughs> of one foot. So <laughs> that was, that's great. Yeah. yeah, that was our elevation change. Yeah, right. It's just a you know historically old floodplain. You know that was always been it's been that forever. They planted corn on it for years and years and years. And then about 50 years ago, they they built what's affectionately known locally as Squishy Valley, but it's actually (laughs) formerly called Sequatchie Valley. And then we changed the name to Sweetens Cove because it's on Sweetens Cove Road. And that's a much better sounding name, we think.
0: And what do you guys have now going forward? Like you have a couple of, you and Rob have a couple of other projects. You're actually in New York now, right? Talking to me?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sitting in uh, the Hudson Valley of New York right now, and um, we are likely going to have our pre-construction meeting tomorrow, which this project's finally been permitted. It took a year. New York is a difficult state, and uh, we're ready to go. We're probably going to have shovels in the ground on Thursday.
0: And tell me about the project.
1: It's in a really cool region you know manhattan and brooklyn have uh for years gone out to long island and well long island is it's kind of getting full you know the hamptons you can't get a return on an investment there and there's not a lot of room to develop anymore so they've started heading up the hudson valley and the, the folks here have been welcoming it because they've been in a recession for oh at least three decades or so and um so it, what 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 this is is a former it's a privately it was a privately owned mom and pop daily fee golf course and it was called rondout valley golf and um this group of six guys from Manhattan that have done a lot of uh residential development um bought it in the fall of seventeen and decided to put on half of the acreage of a rustic but elegant resort with a boutique hotel and 22 cottages and an event barn and a wedding center all this stuff and then we got the other half and um we're just we're rerouting we're blowing the whole thing up it's going to be an entirely new golf course so it it's much similar to to Sweetens and Sequatchie, except for here we have an infinitely better palette to start with as you know it, there's some terrain there's movement already
0: and that's awesome so so this will be you are you guys will to be creating your own it's going to be a nine-hole golf course this is going to be a real original design this isn't a renovation of existing holes
1: no 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 totally totally original in fact the the last three holes are we're abandoning the existing routing and we're going totally cross-country so it's uh There will be no resemblance whatsoever of what was there and what we deliver. So it's uh, it's exciting to to get in there with an open pallet and, uh, you know, just conceptual plans, nothing IFC issued for construction. Just get in there and go by the seat of your pants and make when you see a good opportunity, you take advantage of it. Have fun that way.
0: Yeah. And from what you told me, the land, the land's going to give you some opportunities, isn't it?
1: It is. Yeah, there, there's a lot of movement. And then when they built it uh, 40 years ago, they 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 almost you know, I could almost say, in fact, I can say they over X the ponds that they use to generate the material because the all the fairways are super crowned. So we have a lot of material to work with and it's it's going to be a fun one.
0: And what town is this in?
1: It, it's actually in the court of or the town of Accord, in Ul, Ulster County. It's in the Rochester Planning District, next to High Falls and Stonebrook, or I'm sorry, Stone Ridge. Really, really historic area. High, High Falls was settled in uh, 1659, so there's some fantastic uh, history there.
0: That's really good. That's really good. Hey, Ted, let's do this. Let's take a quick break uh, for a word from our sponsors. And uh, we'll be right back. Introducing Genesis RX 575, a comprehensive fertility and soil amendment product from the Andersons, specifically developed for construction, renovation, aerification, sprigging, sodding, and seeding. This blend of dispersing granule, DG, components provides the most comprehensive fertilizer the Andersons has ever offered with the goal of providing a single product solution designed to save time and application and reduce fertility program complexity. For a limited time, take advantage of a special introductory offer. For more information on Genesis RX 575, visit startwithgenesis.com. From green drainage to sod work, golf preservations can handle your project with ease and
1: give you the peace of mind to know that know professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets visit golfpreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to talk to us directly about your next project
0: okay we're back on the TurfNet renovation report and my guest today is tad king and tad we were just talking about the project in sweetens cove and the one in new york i want to talk about you as the world traveler tell me this story you've kind of uh, told me a quick version of it one time, but I want to hear the story of how you ended up in among other places, but pushing dirt in Egypt. How did that all come about?
1: Well, um, Rob and I were on that project together in, um, Naples where we created King Collins. And after I had finished the Loxahatchee project in, uh, South Florida and Palm Beach Gardens. I went and I did the concession over in Sarasota. So I developed a pretty good relationship with the Nicholas team. And they had a, a spot come open in Tavira, Portugal. So I went over for the summer and finished that up. And that led to uh, a full new 18 in Marrakesh, which right. I started in the summer of uh, 2006. And I worked with two local contractors, both uh, Moroccan, and between the three of us, we got it. We we did a good job. It was a it was a fun project. It went smoothly. Okay. Um, and then, it, it, meanwhile, while I'm in Marrakesh, uh, my phone's ringing like crazy. So I'm not at all worried about work. And well, lo and behold, finish up around I think it was uh, July of 2008. And if, if you if you remember what happened that summer um, yeah so okay n- needless to say my my wife at the time had just had uh our son and so i had a, a newborn and i want i purposely wanted to spend a little bit of time at home and so i did and i went and spent six weeks not worried at all because the phone had been ringing like crazy well during those six weeks um it quit ringing and i got nervous and I had uh, a group of friends that were building a golf course in Egypt in Cairo, and one of them did not like Cairo at all and had an opportunity to get out of there and go to another one, some I forgot, some another country, and so I jumped on it and got in touch with the folks and said, "Hey, I'll I'll come." And so I did. I went over to Egypt, finished up that project, and uh, then I got spoon-fed one down on the coast of of the Red Sea, the closest town to Cairo on the sea is called Ein Sukhna. And so I just put assembled a group of, of all locals. I was the only expat involved in the project and we delivered, it was for uh, Thompson Parrot Lobb. Tim Lobb was the uh, designer and um, he he and I would talk to her and, you know, Skype almost on a daily basis and everything. And he was at the time a product of the, of the, the golf recession as well. And he had lump summed all of the site visits into, um, into the fee, his design fee. And it's, you know, you know what happened to the golf world, everybody, the, the money just dried up. And so he didn't get to make as many site visits or hardly any at all. So that was kind of where I learned I had an act for design because I was, you know, he had drawn it, but I had to implement the whole thing without any input and so that got me a, a stronghold in Egypt, and I had at one time four golf courses to build there. But
0: how many golf courses are there in Egypt?
1: Oh man, there's a whole lot more than you would think. I'd no say a, well over twenty. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, I've never that wouldn't have been the number that I guessed.
1: Yeah. So um, then we had the revolution, in January twenty five, two thousand eleven, and I. I had to ride it out on the coast of the Red Sea. I couldn't go anywhere. Right? It would have been suicide. I, you know, I couldn't go to Cairo, couldn't go to Suez. I couldn't go south to Zaparana because it was all lawlessness. And, you know, being me I, traveling alone, it would just been so I'm stuck, you know. And
0: how scared were you at that point? I mean, that must that. Never having been through a revolution, I can't imagine. What it, that's it was like. very.
1: It was really scary. I'm not gonna kid you. It, they they right. turned off the phones. They turned off the internet. They turned off the televisions. And so I'm stuck in my resort with security guards, and I hear machine AK-47s all night long, and I have no idea what's going on, none whatsoever. And then they gradually started turning stuff back on, and uh, and you know. The first thing was TV, so I had Al Jazeera English, uh, BBC World, and CNN International, and all they were reporting about is Tire Square, and it seemed like Armageddon. I didn't think I was getting out of there. And wow. then when they finally turned on cell phones, first on the perimeter, not in Cairo, but where I was, my phone worked, and then when they, they turned them on in Cairo, I got a hold of some expats that I knew, and they told me. You know, hey, the military's on every corner, there, there's bread and milk in the markets. It's fine. Just stay away from Tyre Square. And yep. No kidding. So at that point I was like, Cool, thank goodness I'm safe and so I, Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, but b- before I heard that from the expats in Cairo, yeah, it was not fun. It was scary.
0: How long were you how long were you in the resort without communication? A week. Oh my God! And so you had no. So your wife doesn't know what's going on. No, right? Because because she you can't get in touch no, with no,
1: her. Nobody, nobody knew anything about me. My mother contacted our senator, who happened fortunately he was a friend of the families, and so he got the the U.S. consulate to reach out to me um, as soon as communications were available, and they did, and um, but but it. I I never left. I I went ahead and rode the whole thing out. Because by the time I could leave, everybody had, you know, there was a four-day wait at the the airport. I'm like, hey, I could sit here in the chalet on the coast of the Red Sea comfortable. Or I could sleep on the floor of the Cairo airport for four days trying to leave. So I just elected to stay. But it's funny because I did have relatives, some cousins that were in New Orleans. They would say, they're like, Tad. For the love of God, run! Get the hell out of there! You know, and I'm like Natalie, It's not that bad. Don't worry. Trust me. I'm I'm okay. You know.
0: <laughs> Did the golf courses get built? We finished it. Yep. That's fantastic.
1: Actually, yes. We went from, uh, you know, I was growing it in with European fertilizers, 17, seventeen, seventeen, ten, and since the money dried up, we started using all. Uh, local ag fertilizers that were used like on the nile delta okay and you can't get them pre-blended you had to get your nitrogen your phosphorus and your potassium they had all come and the phosphorus and potassium would come like the size of you know it'd be two centimeters around and it wouldn't break down with water so we would dump it out on the concrete and smash it with the loader bucket to make it (laughs) to where it would fit through the hoppers and um, loaded up that way, and you know, it really, in hindsight, was really invaluable uh, experience right. for me to learn how to think outside the box and and not have to use these really fancy um, uh, high dollar fertilizers when you know we're just smashing agriculture right. stuff up with the loader bucket and getting excellent That's results. Fantastic. And what did you
0: use for turf? What did you? What was what went down on the course?
1: Uh, uh past Palum, uh Platinum, we brought it in from Atlas Turf um, from from Georgia on refrigerated cars. So we had a we had a four hectare nursery there, and um, you know we grew we got that was the pre-revolution. So we grew that in with with European fertilizers, and in the first half of the golf course we um we we grew in with the European. And then the revolution came, and that's when I sat down with the CEO, and I said, "Look, you know, we can we can finish this. It's you know, there's no reason. You've already purchased all the materials, and just keep screening sand to cap the the fill. It was a huge fill project, three million cubes. So, um, but anyway, everybody listened and. They did their job, and I, I would take a trip home and line people out, come back, and they all did exactly as they were supposed to do, and we we built the whole thing. I think it was 19 months from start to finish, even with all that fill and the revolution.
0: Amazing. Now, so the guys that were working with you, since there, there are other golf courses in Egypt, had they worked on golf courses, any kind of build, or were these guys just locals and never done this?
1: Locals that had never done it—they had what they call agricultural engineering degrees, but they were—they were eager to learn, and um, the—it was—it's a good team. It was fun. The hardest part was uh, um, the superintendent, the growing superintendent, because I'm building it and growing it in, and I kept getting superintendents. It, it was like. A word document they would copy and paste and just change their picture and their military status and they had i mean they really had no experience at all and the first golf course i was on was managed by Truon, and it was when it was under construction and they had an american superintendent and his assistant was um he had been in landscaping but had never worked on a golf course except for the one that the one I was on with Troon. So he, the only experience he came or he ever received on golf courses was for two years from uh, an American legitimate greenskeeper. And it got to the point where I was, I had to tell Hot, who is the CEO of the development firm, it's like, if I don't get enough of a budget to get in a, a real local guy, then I'm, we're done, I'm washing my hands out. it, I'm going to build it and leave it to you. Really? And so he, he caved and gave us enough money to, to get a local guy in, and so I stole the guy from Troon and brought him down to the coast, and he's still there. That was in 2011. And
0: who's that? What's his name?
1: His name is Ayman, Ayman Taya.
0: Fantastic. So tell me about, like for instance, with, with Morocco, and we just talked about Egypt, about finding people and getting them to understand what you're doing if they've never seen a golf course or they've never worked on in this kind of environment, even, you know, moving, moving dirt or, or, or growing grass. How do you teach? Like in Morocco, how did you find a crew? there? Uh,
1: well, in, in Morocco, they had more experience. They had built golf courses before okay. they had never right. built, uh, like this was a Nicholas course. So there was very specific grading plans and stuff. They had worked, uh, with, um, uh architects with uh more liberties in their specs I'd like to I guess is a nice way of saying it um so you know there was quite a bit of a learning curve there you you gain their confidence they they see what what you do and and uh they learn to respect you and and once you have that it, that's you you've won the game
0: and and yeah I'm just I that's interesting and that's a really interesting point to make that it's you know they ha- you have to treat them in a way that they'll respect
1: yeah, you. Yeah, there's okay. There's probably five hundred guys on site, and um, the yeah. the Arabic in in Morocco is is far different from the Arabic in the UAE or Egypt or or the GCC. They it, they can hardly communicate. But Morocco was uh, you know a French colony forever, so there's as much French in in Morocco as there is Arabic and. I realized that okay. everybody can speak French, and so you know, as a necessity, you, you learn it, and I did. Your, your first language is your hardest one, and I learned Spanish when I was in the States because all of our labor was Hispanic, and so picking up on French, I knew all the tricks right. in Spanish, so it, that gave me a big advantage, and what it really did was it, it gave the client and it gave all the guys on the ground and everything— that they like to see that that I put forth the effort to to learn their language and not just try to sign right. language and everything. And um, by the by the end of the project, I wouldn't say I was fluent, but I'd say I, on the, I was job site fluent. I could, you know, tell everybody what to do.
0: And what about getting them to, to understand that? I mean, that you're not building roads and you're not, you know, what I, you know what I mean. You're building a golf course. And do, do they did they get the concept or was it it didn't matter? They just did the job that they were
1: assigned. They got it. Yeah. They're yes, they would. Um, in, in Morocco, we staked out the fairways because we had six inches of sand capping uh, everywhere. Um, and in Egypt, there was a guy from upper Egypt, which is a, a, it's actually when they say upper Egypt, it's where the Nile is begins. Cause it flows, um, it flows South into the, or, I'm sorry, north into the Mediterranean. So up, Upper Egypt is is a very poor region, and there's a guy named Farah, and he was a bulldozer driver for the development company that we were building the coast on the Red Sea for. And he's uh, probably 60-something years old, saved every penny he ever made, and he sent his daughter to law school. And she's fluent in English, and he uh, he and I, gained this mutual respect for each other because I've never seen a more clever guy as far as sand capping. And I would stake out the greens and and he could get the sand into the greens to the twelve inch depth from with a with a D four that was probably older than he was and 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 not make a mess, never broke a head, never it was incredible. And he'd never done anything like this before. I mean, I was just, it blew me away. And so
0: are you, when you're over there, are you getting paid in, you're getting paid in the currency of Egypt and Morocco and?
1: No, 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 and, no. A dollar, no? only dollars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the Arab world, they will not pay in advance, only at rears. And in the Moroccan project, I was getting paid in advance to a, a bank out of Paris. But when they switched it up at the Marrakesh, they're like, well, the the duties haven't been performed. We can't you know, there's no way we can release any money. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? So you, you got to learn to get used to that.
0: And in any of those countries, is there a limit on how many days you, with your work permit, you can stay in the country? Like, do you have to, I know some places it's 90 or 120 days and you have to leave and then you can come back.
1: Yeah. 90 is pretty typical. That's the way Marrakesh was after 90, you got a 90 day, um, uh, touristic visa and, um, this generally most clients do it that way. Cool.
0: Tell me about eating when you're in some of these countries. You, do you have the palate that adapts a palate that adapts when you're in a new, when you're in oh, a new land?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, Oh, in Morocco our the golf course is literally built next to a village made a mud hut village where they make the bricks out of mud. And, um, and they have these little bitty markets, uh, like a family will, We'll have a little bitty market, and you can go in there and get a Coca-Cola or or a candy bar or, or some biscuits or whatever. And I met this one family, and they had uh, four daughters and a son, and they're all relatively young. They're about my kid's age at the time. And so when I would go home, I'd bring coloring books back for them and everything, and we developed this relationship. And it turns out that the wife would cook, and so— I would go, and they had this little seating area off to the side of his little bitty store shop, and so that was my lunch. I would just, <laughs> I'd drive my car over there every day, and I would tell her a day in advance what I want. I want I'd always want a tagine, and on Fridays, I'd have a couscous. Okay. So I sat there in the mud hut with, you know, no air conditioner or anything, and had a tagine with flatbread, and, you know, a, a demi-kilo of mouton. I'd have a, a half a kilo of lamb one day then the next day chicken the next day beef and just whatever I would order the day in advance they'd run to the market and cook it all up so for three bucks I got the flatbread I got the tagine with potatoes or olives or whatever they yep. put in it I got the mint tea and then the old school coca cola you know with the old school yep. bottle for th- for three dollars <laughs> all of that it was unbelievable I gained 20 pounds
0: <laughs> that's really good yeah. That's pretty good.
1: But if I – I lived for Fridays because the couscous was just awesome. Was it really? I yeah. mean, and yeah, Friday is uh, their holy day, and so that's the day they have the couscous. And then when Ramadan came, it would always kill me because she couldn't cook <laughs> for me. And <laughs> – but, but that that was part of the fun of traveling is really immersing yourself into their culture and um, learning the language and it, becoming friends with the locals and not just hanging out in Cairo or whatever uh, you know getting to see becoming kind of like one with the people if you will is that's what that was fun
0: so do you have any uh, you have any international projects coming up
1: Uh. We do not. We've nothing signed. Right. And we've got uh, several potentials. Um, You know, things happen slowly overseas. So, but we're, we're waiting patiently. There are some really exciting opportunities and hopefully one of them pops before too long. Domestically, we are, we're quite busy, which is good, obviously.
0: All right, yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate your time uh, talking to me today. It's really good. Uh, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Uh, I've been talking with Tad King from uh, King Collins Golf Course Architects. Thanks for joining me today, Tad. I really appreciate
1: it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Tony. You've been listening to The Renovation
0: Report on TurfNet Radio.